again, everybody, and welcome to today's Scope of Practice podcast, the product of the Connecticut Certification Board. We continue with our fourth season of addressing anything and everything of interest to professionals in the substance use disorder prevention, treatment, and recovery industry. Today's conversation, in observance of the magnitude of Black History Month, is both necessary and, for some, uncomfortable. It's necessary because the information matters and can help to provide better service and help create better outcome opportunities and uncomfortable because we do not change when we sit in our cozy and safe environments. There must be a strong visceral component to happen for us to elicit change. In short, we don't change because we hear the thunder. We change because we feel the heat of the lightning. We begin by accepting the reality that it is a vastly different experience to be a black person in this country than it is to be a white person, which, for our purposes today, includes the process of seeking care for a substance use disorder. Data as recent as 2021 from SAMHSA shows that 77% of all patients treated with opioid grant funding were white, just under 13% were black and only about 3% were Native American in average across the country. In some states, it was even more pronounced. In North Carolina, which received $54 million, 88% of the patients treated were white with only 7.5% being black citizens. Remember, these are public federal grants and don't take into account those who receive care at privately held boutique facilities. If only 10% of Americans in need of receiving services are getting them, then Black citizens are tremendously overrepresented in terms of need without access. Access itself is not the only difference. How many Black Americans are receiving care that take into account the cultural variations of the underserved population? Issues, issues excuse me, such as stigma related to having an SUD come into play as well. Black Americans are more likely to enter treatment later than white Americans, an average of five years, meaning that their disorder has progressed further before treatment is sought. They're also less likely to compete, complete treatment, and can that can be attributed to factors such as clinician bias, even if unintentional, and lack of diversity among those charged with their care. Why would Black Americans trust a system that, even though already broken, is not designed to meet their needs? Our guest today is Laron Barton. Laron is a writer originally from Kansas City, Missouri, who's currently living in Portland, Oregon, a graduate of Paseo Academy of Fine Arts. Laron is the author of two books, Straight Dope, a 360-degree look into American drug culture, and All We Really Need is Love, Stories of Dating, Relationships, Heartbreak, and Marriage. In addition to these books, he is an essayist whose topics cover racism, mass incarceration, politics, gender, and dating. These works have appeared in a number of magazines, including Black Enterprise, Salon, Harvard Business Review, and many others. He is an international speaker who has given three TEDx speeches and has appeared at Al Jazeera, the University of San Francisco, Navis, Speakers Who Dare, Nas Dubai, Glide Memorial Church, among others. In his spare time, he enjoys mentoring African-American youth, teaching creative writing, and backpacking around the world. I am truly honored that he's willing to spend some of his time with us today. Ron, welcome, my friends. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. I really appreciate uh, you having me, man. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm really humbled that you think that that my thoughts and my words are uh, are apt enough to be able to be on a program like this. So you know, it's it's always very humbling. Well, we're glad to have you, believe me. Um, and I'd like to begin with my first point in the introduction, that Black Americans have a vastly different experience in this country in comparison to white Americans. Many people who have not seen this in action or have lived it themselves may struggle to understand it. Can you give an example or two based on common situations that white folks might take for granted? And uh, how much time do we have? No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I, I mean, obviously, like the first thing that that comes up is our interactions with law enforcement. You know, I, I think that many white Americans view law enforcement as protectors, as people that are supposed to keep them safe, while black folks, for the most part, view law enforcement as this oppressive force, this this uh, very deadly arm of the government. You know, things such as the uh, the ability to be able to receive funds from uh, from family. So one thing about being black in America is that money doesn't flow up, it flows down. And what I mean by that is that 
we, most of us who, most of us will probably come from poverty or, or, or from like working class environments, right? And when we just hustle and grind our way out of those environments to college, you know, we get some type of education, we quote unquote make it in society and get a job or get a career that's paying some kind of money. You know, a, a, a lot of us, we're starting from from zero, Jeffrey. So that means that we don't have um, the, that that ten twenty thousand dollars that that many white families get when uh, when the kid graduates from college. Uh, you know, when they get married. You know, we don't uh, we don't have that. Uh, I believe they they call it a life transfer or a life gift. For example, when we talk about buying buying houses, every white friend of mine has gotten assistance from their family to give them that down payment to, you know, just some type of financial assistance. My brother, you know, we didn't come from money, so he didn't get that. I'm buying property this year. I'm not going to be able to get that. So those are things that, you know, I, I believe that white Americans may take for granted. The, the fact that when you go into seeing a doctor or, you know, any, any type of medical office, hospital, et cetera, et cetera, you're not going to be treated unfairly. I mean, you know, the, the medical industry is rife with, uh, with racism, white supremacy. So there's, there's, there's so, there's so many differences. I mean, just access to, to wealth is just, it's so much easier when you're, uh, when you're white, because again, uh, when I talk about money flowing down, I, like many of other African-Americans, we will have to take care of our family members. We're going to have to subsidize their living situation. I do it. I know other black folks that that do it. It's just what it is when you're black in America. So a part of it is, is or a huge part of it is the inability to kind of accumulate that generational wealth. Absolutely. Starting from the point zero. And I think it was Chris Rock that used to make a joke about Shaq saying, Shaq is rich, but the man who pays him is wealthy. Man, that, uh, you know, I, I think about that joke all the time because I believe Chris Chris Rock was like, um, you know, uh, let me write you a check, Shaq. Why don't you buy another bouncing car? <laughs> but, <it's, laughs> but, you know, there uh, there is a difference between wealth and and having money, you know. One thing that people don't understand, Jeffrey, is like wealth is not built over one generation. It's right. generations. And one of the building blocks with wealth in America is home ownership. I read a book recently called The Color of Law. Uh, he was, the gentleman's name is uh, Rothstein. Uh, and, and, and if I'm mispronouncing his name, I apologize. One of the most detailed and just brilliant books about housing in America. And what the author does is that he goes through from slavery to reconstruction to Jim Crow, and he details all the building, I'm like, I'm sorry, all of the um, barricades, all of just the, um, all of the obstacles that were standing in the way of Black folks buying houses. I mean, we're talking about Houses being burned down. Uh, we're 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 talking about covenants being being put in place to where you can't buy in this area. You know, we're we're talking about shoddy homes being built in Richmond. Uh, that's a, a part of of Northern California. We're just talking about just the inability to to even get loans. You know, the the GI Bill when when it was released, it was only. Um, available to white Americans. So when we talk about why black folks are unable to have built wealth in this country, we have to do better research than saying, oh, well, you know, they're just lazy. They they're just they're just spenders. Black folks are also under underbanked. And for those who don't know what that is, underbanked means that you don't have a bank account. Means that uh, means that you don't have a savings account means that you have to apply and and deal with these predatory banks that that offer these debit cards that charge you um, 
you know, like a, a, a dollar, a transaction. I, I mean, I've, I've been there. I mean, payday loan. Listen, Jeff, I, 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 I ran through the gamut my, myself, not only seeing it from my family, but from myself. So when we talk about the inability to build wealth, I know of it from an institutional lens and also from a personal lens. Let me ask you this. When you go around the country or internationally and you talk and you tell your truth, which is the truth, when you tell your truth across the country, what's the larger message that you're trying to get across to your audience? What do you want them to grasp? It's a really good question. When I talk about my experience, what I want them to know are a couple of things. My experience is not atypical, right? So it's the life of Laurent Barton as a black man in America is the same as the life of any other black man in America. Um, I want people to understand, you know, what it is like to be in a class of people to be in a, in a group of people that have been subjugated and that we have to think about who we are every moment of the day. There's not one part of my life that I'm able to forget that I'm black, whether it be shopping, whether it be applying for a job, whether it be traveling overseas, like I'm, that's always like right in the front of who I am. I, I want people to have a very, uh, I, I, I just, lack of a better term, I, I just, I want people to, to, to have a real view into life as a black person. You know, I'm, I'm not, I don't sugarcoat things because I, I think that when you, when you use certain words to make people feel better and to not make people feel as if they are attacked, that dilutes the impact and that simply waters down the truth. You know, many times when people listen to what I am saying, they are not used to someone who is being so rudely honest. You know, the great Malcolm X once said, make it plain. So I try to strip away all of the all of the niceties, all of the uh, role. I, I, I take the rose colored glasses off of off of people's lens because you know I I've seen speakers like Malcolm X. I've seen, I've listened to speakers like Fannie Lou Hamer who is just unreal. You know, just they're able to articulate a sense of pain and talk about their experiences in a way that is so inspiring and it just and it just makes me want to talk about that in that way. What's generally the response you get from your audiences? You know, for the most part, uh positive. I mean, I I've gotten pushback. I mean, but you know, that's 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 to be um that is to be expected. You know, it, it's funny, uh Jeff, I get more pushback when I put videos online versus when I'm in front of a of an audience and I, I think that has to do with the the anonymity of the internet you know people can hide behind uh an avatar people can leave a comment and you, you can't reach out and have a direct dialogue with them and for example when i made the short video about things that my mother told me when i was young when she gave me the talk and for those who, who don't know what the talk is that is a conversation that black parents have with their sons and daughters when they begin to grow up or when they begin to drive. They pretty much let them know, listen, this is the way of the world. This is what it is. This is what you're going to be faced with. And so when I made that video, again, just just you know, telling my experience and and, you know, my experience is, is no different than uh, than any other. And just the backlash that I got, I'm like, OK, so. I guarantee you that those same people would not say those things if I'm standing in front of them. So, you know, it's, it's, it's coward behavior, but you know, that's just what it is. Right. So let's kind of draw back for a second and, and sure. look at the picture. We talk about substance use disorders. It's like, when right. we look at things like the Harrison act back in 1914 through policies in the current day, you know, American drug policy has been inherently racist so much so Absolutely. that John Ehrlichman, who worked in the Nixon administration, talked about the war on drugs. They were specifically targeting 
uh, uh, targeting the anti-war left and black folks. Uh, he said that before he died. And how does that have a carryover effect on black Americans as a whole? It's a very good question. So I read um, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. I don't know if you've ever read it or or if any anyone listening to this hasn't read it. But if you haven't, please do. It's uh, one of the greatest books on race ever. And if you look at the Harrison Act, it's just sort of a carryover from how racism has been in America. Michelle Alexander says that racism is dynamic. It changes shape. So, you know, 1619, you know, we were brought to, I believe it's Jamestown, Virginia, slavery. So we had slavery. Then came Reconstruction, which which was uh, an extremely rough time for Black folks because you know we were you know we were set free, or, you know if you want to call it that. From Reconstruction came Jim Jim Crow, you know separate not separate but but not equal. Then came the Civil Rights Movement. Now after the Civil Rights Movement, it's a very uh, uh, very important time because it would shape. The present, the Nixon government, they began to sort of go after black people, painting us as the problem with with drugs, painting us as just drug addicts, painting us as the reason why America is so inundated with 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 drugs. And of course, you know, many of our uh, many civil rights leaders, including Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, Malcolm X, they were. They were assassinated. The pan the the Black Panthers came uh came came after. They were uh, they were painted as radical and and the quote unquote enemy. So many of them were incarcerated and or killed, in, in, including the late great Fred Hampton. He was killed in Chicago. After after the Panthers' de- demise came the introduction of crack cocaine into the inner cities. Now, this is a very, very, very important part of America's, particularly how it's affected Black America. These drugs were were funneled in by the government because it's impossible for just crack cocaine, I'm sorry, it's impossible for just cocaine to just appear in uh, in the hood, right? Gary Webb, the author of a book called Dark Alliance, he talked about how the CIA and the uh, and the Contras in Nicaragua, lack of a better term, schemed together to place cocaine into the inner cities to fund the Contras war over there. Mm-hmm. So during that time, there would be instances that you, you would hear that you would hear gang members in South Central say, hey, you know what? We just we just walked up and there were guns, just like a box of guns in the uh, in the train yard. Right. So from cocaine came crack. And when crack hit, there was an incredible amount of violence because, again, you you can't separate crack without the guns. Right. So the guns appear, crack appear, people have to protect their turf. Now, because there was such a an outcry, there was a murder in Queens, New Queens, Queens, New York. It was um, a young cop by the name of uh, John Byrne. He uh, he 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 was a rookie cop, killed and is killed in his cop car, and that essentially set off the government's way to combat. Crack. Matter of fact, uh, George H.W. Bush would campaign with John Burns police badge. Right. Because people were just like, oh, my God, they're just they're just out of control. Shortly after that, Jeff, came what's called the 1994 crime bill. Mm-hmm. And so the 1994 crime bill is very is very important because that skyrocketed mass incarceration or what. I and and other people, including Black Talk radio founder Scotty Reed, is 21st century slavery. So the most devastating caveat to the crime bill 
is that the way that they prosecuted crack versus cocaine, uh, people that possess those 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 drugs. I believe it was for every uh, for every one gram or for every one measurement of cocaine is like it was equivalent to 100 grams of crack. And so the reason why that they did that is because who was in possession of crack? Black folks, right? Latinos in the, in, in the ghetto. So when you have all of these sentencing from the from the crack cocaine wars, from the drug war, you, you had a community that was just destabilized. That's how the mass incarceration boom happened. And this was done, uh, and I'm not saying this because I'm anti-Democrat, but we have to remind people that Joseph Biden, our now president, was chief in pushing this legislation through. Bernie Sanders signed, signed, signed on it. So you so you talk about from, from the Harrison Act to today, well, I mean, the sentencing of so many black men in prison, it totally took men out of the community. It, as I said before, it destabilized a community. And it just, I don't think that the effect, I don't think that we are done with the effects of the 1994 crime bill. And well, I just- and There is I'm, some pressure on, on Biden to overturn at least parts of that. Um, I know President Obama wanted to look for some fairness and set, you know, equity and fairness and sentencing, but the so-called crack house bill, um, the, uh, advocates want that overturned so that there can be safe injection sites around the country to save people's right. lives and things like right. that. But something that you mentioned earlier plays right in the play here, and that you and I talked about kind of offline, mm -hmm. is what we're seeing now is a new Jim Crow, and the new Jim Crow is that substance use disorders in the uh, black community are being treated or being dealt with by incarceration. And there may be some access to treatment in there, but those, those outside um, the majority, as we talked about in the stats, are white. So it's a new Jim Crow in, in how things are dealt with. And the system outside of the incarceration, because uh, I can't speak about inside, is, is really not designed to meet the needs of, of black Americans. Not at all. You know, I I feel my heart goes out to all of the young white kids, young white men and women that are caught up in this opioid crisis. Because the thing about it is, uh, is Jeff, is that the drugs are so much more potent. Man. I mean, I'm in San Francisco at at the moment, and in a tenderloin. It's a wash of fentanyl. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I've never seen any anything quite like it. I mean, you'll see just blocks long of just like young white folks just hunched over trying to get fentanyl. And a lot of the blame has to be focused on the pharmaceutical companies. I believe uh, one of the major families, isn't it the Salter family? Backlers uh, here in Connecticut. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, the uh, uh, the Sackler family. I mean, they they are to blame. The way that it is being attacked. I mean, it's 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 flawed. When I wrote my first book, Straight Dope, a 360 degree look into American drug culture, I'll never forget this uh, this interview. And I was talking to this woman who had been on drugs for years. And we were talking about incarceration and treatment. And she said, I don't believe that that uh, people on drugs should be sentenced to prison. And I said, why? And, and, and she said, well, they're uh, they're addicts and addicts are sick people. You don't sentence people who have cancer to prison, do you? And I, I thought about that. I was like, wow, that is one of the most potent things I, I, ha I had ever heard of when it came to drug abuse you know i wanted to one of the things that that i like about talking with you about this uh, problem uh jeffrey is that you frame it from the perspective of a disorder you know these people are sick they need treatment 
when you put someone in prison for drug abuse, what you're what you're what you're doing is you are essentially punishing them for a bad mistake that they made, right? I mean, no one wakes up and says, I want to be a drug addict, right? right? So you're putting them in an environment that is totally punitive because that's the way that we look at prisons today. You know, we're all about uh, crime and punishment. You know, 50 Cent once said, correctional facilities don't correct shit. And that's 100% true. You know, uh, Edward, uh, Edward Bunker, the writer, talked about prisons in, in the form of uh, an animal factor, right? Be- because, the, because the way that the, that the United States looks at criminality is that these people are broken. They need to be punished. They, uh, they need to pay for what they, they've done. But when we view that, I believe 45% of all people in prison are there due to some type of uh, drug, uh, drug-related crime, that, that's almost half of the folks in prison, right? So why are we punishing them when we should be help, helping them? You know, you and I, we talked about the safe injection sites, right? And, you know, years ago, I used to be so against it. I used to be like, what? You're like, you know, we're going to give junkies a free pass to, to, to do drugs. You know, what are we going to do? Give them, you know, give them nachos. But then years later, I had to pivot. I had to change my mind and be like, hey, listen, like whatever we've been doing prior to this is not working. Right. So why don't we try a different approach? And that kind of ties in, and you've answered this question to some degree as well, is, you know, as opioid use and overdose deaths began to rise really at alarming levels in, in the white population starting back in the 90s, you know, we started to look at this as a country, as a public health problem. But we right. know historically in the drug, uh, in when it comes to drug use in the black community, we handled, and I put handled in quotes, uh, through the through the criminal justice system with what you just said, crack being the most obvious uh, example from the crime bill in 94. So it's not the only example, however, because black and poor folks in our urban centers have been dying from heroin-related overdoses Absolutely. decade upon decade upon decade, and nobody cared. As the number of black Americans dying from overdose now from the fentanyl and from things other opioids other than than just heroin is skyrocketing as we speak do you have concerns that we as a country may revert back to that that strong criminal justice response and i think you're you've already said yeah that's seems like it's you know maybe headed that way if we're not careful 100 so whenever i i think about our response to black folks uh, dealing with crack and 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 how we went after Oh, substance abuse and just totally criminalize it. I just think of something that you know, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said one day. He said, "If, if, if, if you have ten drunk people, nine of them are white and one of them are black, people are going to walk by and say, look at that black drunk.' Right? <laughs> so it's so it, it. We're always going to be the focus of criminality, of of malice, of just." people that are just not doing what they should they should be doing when we look at politics uh in 2023 we're seeing a lot of mayors from big cities they're starting to pivot towards more of a heavy-handed law and order approach right so for example in san francisco mayor london mayor london breed uh has hired a new district attorney, I believe her name is Brooke Jenkins. Brooke Jenkins has came out and said that she is going to prosecute more drug addicts, more people in possession of of drugs. If you look at uh, New New York City, you have Mayor Eric Adams. He is a cop. You know, he what you know he he was a cop before he became a mayor. And he said on many different occasions that he's going to be taking a more law and order approach. Here's the thing. People and, you know, right or wrong, you know, it all depends on how how you look at it, where uh, where you stand. People are 
tired of seeing folks laying on the laying on the street, you know, using drugs. There, there's this crime. There, there's this crime narrative that has been painted in a lot of major cities. I don't believe it to be true because, I mean, I, you know, Portland's not unsafe. I mean, like it's not unsafe. San Francisco is not this fallen city. You know, Los Angeles is is not this this crime ridden metropolis. However, because of this narrative that has been painted for these cities being out of control, it's the it's it's the it's the drug addicts, it's it's the fentanyl. I believe in the years to come, Jeff, you're gonna see a lot of cities taking a more heavy-handed approach to um substance abuse disorder and it's really sad because instead of making progressive moves like safe injection sites where and correct me if i'm wrong people can uh test their drugs people can have can have needle can have a clean clean needle because do we want to have these people on the street doing this possibly killing themselves you know people stepping on people stepping on needles people over overdosing on drugs that are that 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 are not good or we just going to face the fact and say okay look as much as we don't want people to do drugs people are going to do drugs so let's try to combat this in a different way mm-hmm. and we don't and we don't want to do that because to do that uh jeff is to say that the war on drugs it never worked. It was just built to just make people less gas and money. Because if you look at it, the war on drugs has propped up so many industries. Yeah. You know, many cops have gotten overtime, many different departments have been created. You have the prison industrial complex. Like there's a there there there's a great podcast called Ear Hustle. And they had this episode about a prison closing. Now, as someone who would one day want to be an abolitionist, I think that is great. I I think that is great news. However, you have people in this town who are so dependent on working in this prison that they don't want to see this prison closed. They don't want uh, lighter laws uh, when it comes to drug possession. So So the drug war has made so many people wealthy and given given them an opportunity to have a career that to say that uh that the drug wars failed is to admit that we that we need to stop doing these things and america is just not ready to do it but it has failed and a good number of people see that um well we let's take a look at the treatment system for a second you know increasing the awareness that difficulties that Black Americans experience when they seek professional help. Like we said, it's an average of five years later than a white person. So the uh, their substance disorder has progressed to uh, almost an emergency state. Um, and although this would only serve as an introductory step to overall change, let's talk about some important terms that people hear but cannot necessarily understand. Can you talk to us about what structural barriers are that make accessing health care, including substance use disorder care, make it so difficult? Money. I mean, it's like, I mean, you know, you have to have money. I mean, if if you look at many of people, these uh, these folks that have went, that have been able to go into treatment, I mean, I mean, listen, like in-person treatment is not cheap, I imagine. It, I mean, it, it costs several thousands of dollars to to go into a, a 90 day rehab, you know, 30 day rehab to get clean. I mean, these folks that go into these programs, they have access to, to money, access to connections that many black folks just don't have. You know, when what when we talk about healthcare, and again, I mean, you know, we can look at health healthcare similar to the way that we look at schools. The neighborhood that you live in, the zip code that you reside in, those places are going to have more than adequate education. They're going to have 
better hospitals, better clinics, uh, people who are not burnt out. Going back to San Francisco. So if you ever, there's a public hospital here. I've only been there once. And man, it is, it's, it's, it's really depressing. It is a really sad environment. Like it is so underfunded. But when you're looking to visit somewhere that's public, somewhere that's funded by the government, it's it's going to be sub substandard compared to private institutions, you know, institutions that that cost a lot of money, and many black folks just cannot afford that. Mm-hmm. And and plus all and plus also, you know, there's uh there's the shame aspect too, you know, in in my community, being a crackhead, being a heroin addict, you know, it's just looked upon as just negative. It's just dirty, get away from me, don't come over here. And it's not viewed with compassion. And I believe that that's because of the way that society has framed those type of uh, those type of of drug of drug users. When uh, when we look at the of uh, the uh, the opioid crisis, right? It doesn't have the uh, the same sort of sting, same sort of disgust that someone smoking crack does, Be- because in the in in the, in the media, in entertainment, in in, li- in literature, the crackhead here he or she is always down- downtrodden. They're always dirty. They're always doing what they doing what they can to get their next fix. They're they're stealing. They're violent. But the opioid person, they are helpless. They are oh oh my god they just they just fell on on hard on hard times how could this happen to them so I agree I mean and I look at how things were just in my own experience I I had a brother who died took his own life with an overdose in 1990 um, he had a history long history of mental illness inability to hold a job um, all of the things. And at that point in time, he was said, oh, it was really just another junkie died. His daughter right. died a few years ago as an adult related to an overdose. And the the and it was a horrible situation. But the view of it was very different because of the time. And in right. reality, she, and that she was a victim of the opioid crisis. Why wasn't he a victim or why is there not some unique uh uh, some kind of common language um, there is, and it's negative, and especially negative when it it goes to people of color. Without the realization that culturally, that in the black Absolutely. community, like you said, it's a point of shame. Often, if you're if you have a family member who is uh, using Absolutely. substances or things, so the stigma is even greater in the black community than in the overall community. So you're fight. I mean, that's a uh, you're fighting that. Um, how do we dismantle these barriers, these structural barriers? And I, that's a loaded question because when we talk about the structural barriers, we've got, number one, we've got poverty. You've got lack of opportunity. You've got inadequate education. You've got a single parent home with a mom working two jobs who can't right. keep an eye on the kids like she wants to because she's right. got to feed them. So you've got all of these things that come into play uh, in environments. And and so, in a perfect world, sure. Um, um, how do we dismantle some of that stuff? First off, um, you know, we need to actually admit that it's here. You know, the thing about America, Jeff, is that America prides itself on meritocracy, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's all about, well, you know, you can be anything if you work hard enough. Okay. And, you know, work and like hard work is imperative. It is something that is needed. But one thing we have to under, understand and admit is that many groups have a hand up and, and many don't. Mm-hmm. Listen, so I'm in the, so I'm in the tech space, right? And, you know, when, you know, when we look at tech companies like Google, uh, Microsoft, 
Facebook, I'm sorry, Meta, Twitter. These places at the most have maybe three, four percent black folks. So there's a so this is a deliberate effect. This is not something created in a vacuum. This is not an accident. This is something that is intentionally done. So first off, we uh, we have to admit that there is a problem, that there is a severe inequity, right? Mm-hmm. And that's simply be, uh, because Black folks in America were slaves. Secondly, reparations has to be done. It The the median wealth for black people versus white people, the the gulf is so is so is so wide that I I, I read a report read a read a headline year, year years ago that stated that if white folks stopped with like working and accumulating wealth for two hundred and forty years uh over two hundred thirty two twenty four years, then possibly we will be able to catch up. But be, but be, be, because of our our state, and again, people will say, well, you know, slavery was over. You, you know, you need to stop complaining. Okay, you know what? Slavery was uh was uh was over. Um, you know, June you know Juneteenth. I believe it was eight eighteen sixty five. I believe that's when uh, Major Granger came to uh, came to Galveston, Texas. However, we've had so many obstacles being put in place that have pretty much subjugated us our entire lives. So you cannot tell a people to rise up and to meet me there when you've had an incredibly uh, long head start, when you have not even allowed me to even get into the game. So that's number two. And number three, we need to have laws th- that are built on data and compassion rather than this this penny any nickel uh, nick nickel stuff and what and what I, and what i mean by that is that we need to have concrete legislation that is going to impact african americans specifically African Americans, not people of color, not BIPOC, none, uh, none of this, not, not black people that immigrated over, over here. I'm talking about specifically black people, uh, in uh, black people who who are descendants of enslaved Africans in in America. Until we do those those three things, I don't feel like that we're going to move the needle because. One, because Jeff, here here's the thing: individual conquests, like individual uh, achievements, don't mean anything in the grand scheme of things. LeBron James becoming a millionaire, I'm sorry, billionaire, that is awesome, but that does not affect black people's conditions in Cleveland. We are where we are because we were enslaved. So, I mean, you know. So, I mean, we're taking a really, really complex issue and boiling it down to a simple point of disparities and inequity. And I think that plays a larger role in all aspects of it, even in return, if we boil it all the way down to somebody seeking treatment, um, even if they can get in treatment, the disparity in the, the uh, in what they may be able to access, the quality may not be there as well because of all I mean, of the uh, other factors. You know, um, I'm I'm glad that you brought that up. So I'm, I'm reading a book right now called Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington. And Miss Washington talks about how in the medical industry, Black people were not only given sub, substandard treatment because, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that that's obvious, but just how we were viewed. And, and again, this goes back to to the crackhead, to, you know, the way that we view drug addiction It's like we were often viewed as people who could uh, who were who who were not smart skin that could with, with, withstand more punishment. We I mean, it, it just all this racist pseudo pseudoscience. So, of course, that's going to be filtered down from 
from the people that were teaching from from generations. Again, I I, I want everyone to, to to understand that none of this is coming out of a vacuum. Like this isn't just something that just popped up. This is generations after generations after generations. Yeah, I think and it 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 continues and will continue unless something is done uh to combat it. And I mean a, a major change and a major shift. Um you know, we can talk about, oh, John Lewis did this and John Lewis did that, but who's the next John Lewis who's going to also uh, get others to rise up and, and fight as well? But Absolutely. we also seen what happens when the fight, what the fight for equality is. Uh, many people think that equality for others means less for them. And instead of it just meaning equal access, you know, we've had a, a, a really good conversation and unfortunately we're short on time. So we might have to do a part two uh, and address this again, if you're game with that. Um, 100%. But we haven't even scratched the surface of the huge problem. And it's about access, equity, and quality. Yes, Are there sir. any rec other recommended readings or resources that our listeners can mm -hmm. access for more information? And you've mentioned some great books already. Yeah, no, I mean, I de uh, definitely uh, the new Jim Crow by uh, yep. by, by Michelle Ale Alex Alexander. Uh, I would recommend reading uh, Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington. And you know, I, I oh gosh, there was a book. Um, uh, it's a Truth Out's editor. She wrote a book about addiction, and I am so sorry that I am unable to think of the name. But phenomenal book. Uh, let me. Let me actually look her up. But yeah, you know, those are uh, those two books. I uh, I would definitely start with those and just simply I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, like um, I, I would just say, honestly, just, you know, start, you know, start reading, start, uh, start learning about. Um, these um, these drugs that are coming out, I mean, they're. I had just recently learned that there was a drug that's coming from the East Coast. They call it Trank. Yep, xylazine. Okay, there. Uh, yeah, the okay. horse, the veterinary um, sedative. Crazy, right? And and it's, it does not respond to Narcan. It's just not an opioid. Wow, that is scary. Yeah. So I think another thing that that and I, I like to use pop culture references, but I'm old, so my references are often old. But when you talk about what it's like in a a public hospital, if somebody wanted to see what it, what a public ER may look and operate, I certainly recommend um, uh, watching Bringing Out the Dead with Ving Rhames and Nicholas Cage Absolutely. because it shows what a city ER can be like in a public mm -hmm. hospital. Um, although it's it, you know it, there's some kind of wildness to that movie and stuff, but to see what the ER is <laughs> like, and when we talk about difficulty accessing treatment the the best that i've seen showing it in a general sense was called a movie called gridlock with one of my favorite uh, movies of all time one yeah, of my favorite with, with tupac ever. and tim and i can't think of his last name but he was yeah. in pulp fiction as well mm -hmm. um it just showed that the hoops and the hustle people have to go through to accuracy who don't have money that the hustle to get into treatment is is harder than the hustle that they have on the street to survive you know that movie. I mean, it's it's so it's it's so brilliant. Uh, it believes the the man's name is uh, Tim uh, Tim Roth. Tim yes. And it just the hoops that they have to go through. You know, you got to go to this building. You got to get a slip from here. You got to go across town. I mean, getting into treatment should not be hard. You know, finding a bed when you're homeless when it's the winter time should not be hard, but it is. Right. If and, I have Blue Cross Blue Shield, I can call them and say, where should I go? Where do you cover? But if I don't have that, it's a hustle. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, and and um and 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 Jeffrey, we're now in an economy that, that it's it's called the gig economy now, right? So you have people doing doing DoorDash, people doing uh, Uber Lyft. I don't know if those corporations offer people that drive people that that deliver health insurance that would allow them to seek treatment if 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 need be i think that in my opinion going to treatment is a luxury 
And it's a luxury that is not afforded to a lot of people. Right. Because again, if you don't, because again, if you don't have insurance, man, you know, you're out there bad. So. And it doesn't, and you certainly can't account for the quality because a lot of treatment is not really getting it done uh, because they're they're not focusing on what's going on. They're using old ways that never worked before, but they're afraid to change. Um, Absolutely. They may work for some people, but not most. Right. Uh, no, I, I, I think I, it's uh, terrible to have a treatment center where if you, you're comfortable with helping 50% of the people at best. Well, you know, you and I, we, uh, you know, we talked about this uh, when when we first met is that drug treatment, al- alcohol treatment is not a one size fits all. Right. Um, you know, people have have different reasons, uh, different paths to uh, to addiction. And if we don't address that, like if we don't come at it from an individualist, an individualistic aspect then we're just doing just like copy and paste and you know we're just going to fail and in many cases that's what we are doing right anything you'd like to add before we finish up you know i just want to say thank you so much for this uh for this talk it's it's been absolutely wonderful um i just want people when you see someone who's on drugs when you when you see someone that's you know sleeping in the streets don't just look at them as just someone that just failed someone who's who's dirty have compassion for them man you know it that's that's someone's child and i mean that's you know that's someone's friend i mean we have to we have to look at these people not as failures but as someone that that we that we can help and and by the way the uh the editor of truth out she's a, a young lady by the name of maya Shwin, uh, Shin, Shinwar. She wrote a book called Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better. It's a really good book. Excellent. I didn't get a chance to finish it because I lost it, but she works for Truth Out. Truth Out is you know, always doing really good stuff. So I would definitely advise you to pick that book up as well. well I appreciate it. And, and I appreciate your time. Um, and that's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. We appreciate you for listening. I'm incredibly thankful that Laram is not only able to join us, but for his willingness to help us address this issue and talk about things that can be difficult. And I really hope that this conversation has piqued your interest in learning more. Um, and Laram, I'm glad to say that the majority of our listeners are the people that don't look away and don't think <laughs> that there's something wrong with that. That's awesome. Try to help. Uh, and please keep listening and tell your colleagues that we continue to bring forward issues that are discussed far less often than they should be. Laurent, thank you. We will talk again. All right, right, Jeffrey. Take care, man. And until next time, everybody, we'll see you then.